Oh, Father, what a joy is ours to sing together and to gather together and to remind ourselves of your goodness, to say together as a congregation, it is well. It is well with our soul. Father, speak to us through your word today. Challenge us, convict us, and uh, help us to make application where application is needed. Refresh us with your word today, I pray, even as we confront ourselves with the weaknesses of our own flesh. Father, we long to walk in the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit under His control daily, thinking with redeemed minds and the renewing of our hearts. And I just pray as we live in a, in a sin-stained world where the world presses in upon us and where our, fresh, our flesh is so uh, easily distracted and, and sin is so tempting, that you would just help us to be strengthened in the power of your might and live for the glory of your grace, all for the gospel, all to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, I invite you this uh, Thanksgiving Sunday as we head into Thanksgiving week to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians in our New Testament, an epistle written by Paul to the believers at Colossae. And I want to lay a foundation in our thinking by reading some of the passage of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes there uh, that if we have been raised with Christ... We are to seek the things that are above. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. When he says, if we are raised with Christ, that means that we are in newness of life. We've been to the cross. We've repented of our sin. We've confessed our sinfulness before a holy God. We've accepted his finished substitutionary work where Christ went to the cross in our place. We've traded in our dirty, filthy rags and our sin baggage, and all that we are without Christ, and we have received the finished work of Christ, His righteousness, as though it were our own. That's all done by faith. You, a sinner, before a holy God, you and I, sinners, before a holy God, admitting our sinfulness, receiving His forgiveness through the finished work of Christ. It's a remarkable reality. Our New Testament spends the balance of its time teaching us how to walk in this newness of life, how to live a spirit-filled life. The the Spirit of Christ is in us. We're part of the body of Christ. We're to walk in newness of life. But all of us here today can bear testimony, can't we, of the weaknesses of our own flesh, those residuals that hold on, that will only be fully redeemed when we enter the presence of the Lord, when we see Him as He is, and we will be like Him fully redeemed, the world presses in upon us, and we have Satan and all of his schemes. But notice what Paul says. If you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You are to set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. All of that happened at our salvation. When Christ, who is your life, appears, when Christ, did you see what it says? Who is your life? That's who we live for. That's what we're all about. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Now notice that Paul gives some practical instructions now, beginning with verse 5. The noun is, is you, the reader. You and I put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So Paul is reminding us that though we are raised in Christ, though we have the mind of Christ, and we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ, that we have to do battle in this world, and that we have a responsibility to put these things aside, the old ways, the things that we used to be before we knew Christ. He goes on with this list. This is not an exhaustive list. This list of sexual immorality and impurity and these things. Look at verse 7 then. He reminds the Colossian believers and us as well. You too once walked when you were living in them. You used to look like this. This used to be what you lived like. Some of you can remember. You don't want to think too much about it. What you used to be without Christ. And the shambles and the mess that you made of things. But he says, on a, and, and, but now you must put them all away. And he adds some more to the list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And you have put on the new self. It's kind of like putting, taking off a dirty set of clothes and putting on a clean set of clothes. You've changed clothes in Christ. You've given up your sinful, filthy rags, and Christ offers you His robe of righteousness. Now, we're positioned in His righteousness, and on a day-to-day basis, we want to wear the righteousness of Christ so that people can see in us the changes that have taken place. Verse 9, He reminds us, don't lie to one another. And there's where He says, you have put off the old, you have put on the new, verse 10, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And now he says, put on. He's told them what to put off. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's like Paul's just making a grocery list. You used to walk in this muck of the world, and you used to do this stuff. Put that stuff away. Now put this on, and even as believers in Christ, we have to be reminded how it is we're supposed to live. Because we can yield to the tendencies of our flesh. We can yield to the patterns of this world and live like we used to live or live like people around us who don't know Christ. Look what he says. He continues in verse 14. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And then a three-word sentence. And be thankful. It's almost like he wanted to make sure he had that in the list and he forgot. He goes through this whole list. Do all of this and above all, put on, put on love. We have to love one another. Without love, we're nothing. Oh, by the way, and be thankful. Is that a re- an important reminder in your life like it is in mine? Do you find it relatively natural to forget to be thankful? I don't know what it is, but as we journey and as we live our lives and we're under the stresses of every day and we've got our own set of pressures, everybody does, the kids won't obey, 
my husband doesn't love me like I wish he would love me. My boss doesn't understand me like I wish he would understand me. I can't make the bills. I can't pay my bills at the end of the month. I'm overwhelmed. And in the middle of it all, Paul is saying to us, oh, and be thankful. We are to be thankful people, part of the result of the transforming power of Christ in our lives is that God's people are to be characterized by hearts of gratitude. We're to be thankful people. We're to see the things around us and the things God has done for us and all of the spiritual realities as well. And we're to be thankful people. This week we're leaving Matthew to just have a Thanksgiving reminder here today. It's we're going to plan to start in on a Christmas series for the month of December, and it'll be pretty much the first of the year before we get back to our series in Matthew. Today is a topical message, uh, a challenge. I know that it's something that is so easy, even for me as well. I know that people think, well, the pastor, he really has it together. The pastor doesn't, he's preaching to everybody else. I'll tell you, I, I just struggle with having a grateful heart like I ought to have. It's so easy to be caught up in, in all of the things that aren't going the way you wish they would go and to take for granted other things. And, and the next thing you know, you're, you're chasing yourself through life and through your week and you recognize that you're not characterized by gratitude. What Paul is saying here, and be thankful, it's like that tripped a, a thought in his mind. Look at Colossians 3, where he says at the end of verse 15, and be thankful. He then kind of gets onto a thankful theme here for a few verses. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. I would say that thankful people are people who sing a little bit, don't you think? They have a tune going through their mind. There's a song in their heart if you're a thankful person. And whatever you do in word or deed, verse 17, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Look what he says again. Giving thanks. Washing the dishes, paying the bill, changing the diapers, gassing the car, heading off to work before it's daylight, doing homework when I'm tired, grading papers when I'm tired, Going to the doctor to see if this skin cancer is malignant. We're to be characterized as grateful people. People who are thankful. Paul is emphasizing here, God's people are to be thankful people. Will you say that with me? God's people are to be thankful people. So I've been thinking about this. What does this look like in our lives? How do I know if I'm a thankful person? It ought to be that if somebody spends time with you and then they leave and they're telling someone else about their time with you, one of the things that should come to their mind when they're briefing someone about their, their interaction with you is they should say, and that is really a thankful person. If somebody comes to our church for at least a few times, maybe not just one time, but if someone is hanging out with a group of Christians or in our church and they're off telling someone about it, I've been over to Fellowship Bible Church. What was that like? Oh, you know what should come to their mind fairly quickly towards the surface? 
They are just a thankful group of people. And um, so it concerns me because I think if the, if the pastor's not characterized by gratitude and thankfulness, how would the people ever be characterized by gratitude and thankfulness? I really want to be more of a thankful person. Do you? So let's test ourselves with uh, a topical message today, and let's look at three different passages of Scripture. Two are stories in the Old Testament. One is the instruction of Paul in the New Testament. And let's test ourselves um, by coming at it from actually the negative. If we're to be thankful people, then thankful people are cannot be certain things. So if we are, then we know we're not thankful people if these things manifest themselves in our lives. You'll see what I mean. Point number one is thankful people don't grumble. Thankful people don't grumble. So my point is that if I grumble or if I am a grumbler, what do I know about myself? I am not, you say it, I am not a thankful person if I'm a grumbler. And here's why we cannot be grumblers. Here's why it's not okay to be a grumbler. All right. For one thing, if you're a thankful person, you don't grumble. But here's the point. Grumbling is a for sure indicator of dissatisfaction with God's provision for my life. When I'm dissatisfied with what God has provided for me in my life, my car, my home, my family, my job, if I'm dissatisfied with what He has provided for me, my clothes, nothing in my closet, what do I do? I begin to grumble. I don't like my life. I wish people would change. And often what we're grumbling against is the very things that God has provided for us. We have an example, an illustration of this that is somewhat familiar, and it's in Exodus in our Old Testament. Let's begin in Exodus chapter 16, okay? Exodus chapter 16, and uh, you know and are familiar with Moses, God's leader. The children of Israel had been in Egypt for over 400 years. They had been made slaves of the Egyptians. And then one day, God raised up Moses, remember? And then the ten plagues came. The ten plagues came, and Pharaoh let, his, let God's people go through Moses' leadership. And off they go into the wilderness, okay? And um, they're, they're in the wilderness. Uh, Pharaoh's army chased them. The sea parted. And now they're about a month in. So if you're about a month out of Egypt, and when you left, remember that the Egyptians even gave them the jewelry off their bodies and, and, and they, they took the spoil of the Egyptians because you remember that the last plague was the death angel. And those without the blood of the, of the lamb over their doorposts, the firstborn of every living thing in their household died. And so there was wailing in Egypt that night. And, and God said, now's the time to go. And so God led them off. We know that there were at least 600,000 foot soldiers at that time in Israel, or young men of army age. And so if you do the math, most Bible teachers believe that there was a minimum of 2 million Jews that headed out into the wilderness that night. And so they're 30 days about out into the wilderness... Let's read what's going on. They set out from Elam, Exodus 16.1, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. It is appropriately named because they did a lot of it out there. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month, 
after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, look what it says, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. You remember that Moses argued with God at the burning bush, telling him that he couldn't speak, he couldn't be the leader that God really wanted to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And so one of the things that God did to show Moses his power and to assist him was say, I will give you your brother Aaron to speak for you. Aaron becomes the high priest. Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, verse 3, And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Let's read on just a little bit. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, and I may test them, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when, you, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you would grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Here's what's going on. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were in horrific circumstances. If you'll recall, Pharaoh had doubled down on them, working them impossibly in difficult situations. They were longing to leave and have, get returned to the promised land. But now they're 30 days in the wilderness, so the first thing we sense in the passage that we're reading is that they're all distressed. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Why did they grumble? Because there wasn't any food. They're 30 days out, and so their rations and their supplies that they had brought along were running thin. And they were about out of food, and evidently they had been out of food for several days, and so they're really getting distressed. We have no food. In this difficult situation, they become very defeated. The stress and distress leads to defeat. It's a very difficult, unstable circumstance. Hey, Moses, we're in the wilderness. Where's the food? And so they begin to imagine some things about the old ways. Do you notice, do you notice that when you're distressed and it, it seems like maybe God's not listening to your prayers and life is difficult and you're defeated, that you can imagine yourself back in the old days? That's what these guys are doing. They, they say to themselves, well, all we have, if we could just go back to Egypt where there was great food and there was plenty of bread and meat and they imagined and they forgot how difficult the old days were. They forgot how much they hated being slaves. They forgot what bondage felt like and all they could imagine was the bread and the slop that got thrown into their living quarters when they were under slavery, but they at least got to eat. And so in their distress, they're defeated. And then they begin to doubt. They're doubting. Distress leads to defeat, leads to doubting. What are they doubting? They're doubting Moses' competency to lead. 
Who are you that you should lead us? You don't even have any food. They're doubting Moses' competence to lead and they doubt God's compassion to feed. You know, God just told Moses he's going to do something for them. He heard their grumbling. This begins something that would last then for the entire time that they were in the wilderness. And God says, here's what's going to happen. Starting tonight and tomorrow, one thing that happened was he sent quail to fly through the camp at knee height so they could hit them with sticks and have meat. But then, starting the next morning, somehow falling with the dew of the morning was some kind of a heavenly bread that came down. It was a substance that was edible and would sustain them with nourishment. It was evidently some kind of a white, fluffy kind of substance. Interestingly enough, when they gathered it, they would have enough for the day, and when the sun came to full heat of the day, it would evaporate what was there. But they could gather it, take it into their kitchens, and they could fix it in different ways. I imagine that they learned different recipes to use manna, for which to use manna. I picture it's some kind of a lightweight material, not the heavy cornmeal mush that the Africans eat that Johanny and Love were talking about. Uh, last Was that just last week? Two weeks ago. It's very white what they eat, but it's very pasty. I picture this being something light and they pick it up. And interestingly enough, when they did it, if they picked up too, enough for tomorrow, it would get worms in it. Only on the sixth day. On the eve of the Sabbath, as they picked up that day, for that day they could pick up a double portion and it would, it would sustain itself and they could keep it in their cabinets and they could eat on the Sabbath with it. Only that day. Any other day, if they kept enough for tomorrow, it would get worms in it. It would go spoil. It would spoil. God is providing. I wonder if Jesus had this in mind. In the, in the Lord's Prayer that we were studying in Matthew, where he said, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, they haven't experienced it yet, but it begins here. Because of their grumbling, God has compassion. He feeds them. It was also a test of their faith. Every day they would go to bed and they had no food left. The next morning they would get up and look out of their tent and the ground would be covered with white manna. God provided food again today. So they would go gather their food, they would eat, God would sustain them, giving them their daily bread, providing for them. This is God's provision. Not a bad deal. If they kept a little bit extra for a, for a snack early on, you know, or in the middle of the night when I get up, they would find it had worms. The next day they open their tent, more manna, enough for that day. No food when they go to bed. The next day, manna. You go to bed, no food in the cupboard. I wonder if God will provide my food tomorrow. And every day he did. Now let's go to Numbers chapter 16 and let me show you something. They complain about water in chapter 17 of Exodus. But if we move ahead to Numbers 11, Numbers 11, I don't know if I said the right number. Numbers 11, I want you to see something here. And when we jump ahead to Numbers 11... Chronologically, according to the calendar, we're about a year into the wilderness now. Remember when God first gave them manna, they were about 30 days. So every day for a year, they have awakened in the morning, they have opened their tents, looked out, and there's white fluffy bread lying on the grass for them to collect and feed themselves that day. 
God hasn't missed a day. God has met their needs. It's a year later, 364 days or so later, maybe a day short of a year. Anyway, it's about a year. Every day, manna. Guess what they're starting to complain about in Numbers 11? And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. I take it they lost some people and some tents and some cattle. Something, God scorched them in his anger. I think that's more than just figurative language that his anger burned. Evidently, God woke them up a little bit with some fire falling out of the sky. So the name of that place, verse 3, Numbers 11, was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble, the ESV translates that word rabble, it means a mixed multitude or literally a collection. It means the non-Israelites. There were other nationalities that came out of Egypt with them. And anybody who is a non-Israelite is who's categorized by the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also with them wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. Yeah, you were slaves and it was fish heads and tails. It cost nothing. And the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but what? There is nothing at all but what God provided for us, this manna. God provided that for you. You begged for it. You were starving to death. And you don't even have to work for it. And every day God gives you sustenance. And he gives you his daily bread. And you haven't missed a meal. And now you're grumbling against God again. Why? Because I'm dissatisfied with God's provision for my life. And when I'm dissatisfied with what God has chosen to provide me with, I begin to grumble. I think that's a pretty serious issue. I think to take the things that God has blessed us with. I hate this house. I hate this car. It's a piece of junk. How come I don't have a boat to be dissatisfied with the things that God has provided is a serious offense to a loving, providing God who meets our needs today. Attitude check. Do you grumble? Do you grumble? If you grumble, you are not a thankful person. Thankful people open the tent window, look out at the white, and say, Children, look what God has done today. Every day this year, we haven't missed a day. God has been so faithful to us. It's not T-bone. It's not baked potato with all the dressing on it and the side salad and unlimited bread with hot butter, a little honey stirred in, endless refills of sweet tea. But every day God has given me exactly what he wanted to give me. He's met my needs and I need to be thankful for this right now. 
He has blessed me so much. Instead of imagining that somehow in the old days, somehow going back to the old ways is where life really is. It's an imagination. Do you remember how miserable it was back there? Remember how they beat you? Remember how you worked all day? Remember how they doubled up the work? Remember how you cried out because you were hungry all the time then? It wasn't always just great bread and meat and onions and garlics and melons. You're imagining that because you're so dissatisfied with God's provision today. God's people are thankful people, and thankful people don't grumble. Grumbling is a for sure indicator of dissatisfaction with God's provision for my life. Second story from the Old Testament is 2 Kings 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, let's turn there quickly, and uh, we'll bounce down on this story and get the point of it. Thankful people also are not greedy people. Thankful people are not greedy because greediness is a for sure indicator of disappointment with God's plan of blessing for my life. Grumbling is a for sure indicator of my dissatisfaction with God's provision in my life. Greediness is a for sure indicator of my disappointment with God's plan of blessing for my life. Thankful people are not greedy people. This is the story of Greedy Gehazi. Do you know Greedy Gehazi? You remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal up on, uh, up on the mountain with uh, Jezebel's priests of Baal and how they cut themselves and there was no water in the land of Israel. And for three years, Elijah had held back through God's power God trying to wake up the people to live right. He had, he had created no rain and a drought Spoiling the economy, King Ahab was looking for Elijah, that Elijah, the great prophet. Well, when he got old and God took him to heaven, right before he took him to heaven, he took his mantle of his prophet and his covering and he put it on a young study named Elisha. This is a story about Elisha. Elijah was God's man in Israel at this time. It was a difficult time in Israel. There was a lot of wickedness. There was a lot of starvation and hungry stretches. There were wicked kings. There were false gods the people were tempted to follow after. And the prophet stood up and would cry out, How long are you going to be torn between two? If God is God, follow God. If Baal is God, follow Baal. Elisha followed in his footsteps. These Elijah and Elisha, they had a lot of power. God did miracles through them. Elisha had a servant named Gehazi. Gehazi is one of the key players in 2 Kings chapter 5. What happened was, at the beginning of chapter 5, we're introduced to a guy named Naaman. This is a great Sunday school story. Many of you might remember it from your kid's Sunday school teaching or being a kid. Remember, it was a great story. Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Syria. 2 Kings 5.1 says. So he was a very powerful, influential man in the country. The king had a lot of confidence in him. But he had a problem. He had leprosy. Leprosy was like the Ebola, AIDS, MRSA combination all at one. It's going to kill you. There's nothing you're going to be able to do about it of the Old Testament. 
It was a, a flesh, a flesh rotting disease. If you had leprosy, it meant that your, your skin, the circulation dried up in your extremities at first, usually the backs of your hands and your skin would turn white because there was no circulation. It would die. Then it would turn black. Then it would fall off the ends of your ears, the tip of your nose. It was just your flesh would just rot off your bones and it would kill you. You'd get infection and you would die. It was communicable by touch, and so you had to stay away from people lest they touch something that you've touched, that they would get leprosy, and there was no known cure, this skin disease. It was horrible. Here's this most influential man in Syria, commander of the armies. On one of his campaigns, he had brought back from Israel a little Israelite girl, and she made a perfect little maid for his wife in their home. This little girl evidently heard the conversation of the household, all of the distress, all of the attempted remedies, all the things that didn't work. The leprosy is is spreading. It's getting worse. He's in distress. And one day, the little girl evidently hears the conversation and she says, there might be some help for you back in my home country. There is a prophet of God there named Elisha. He can do great things. Because he's an influential man and he's the commander of the army, he goes and it, he, uh, he goes to his king. Notice uh, the end of verse five. It says the king of Syria, um, the king of Syria said, go now. Verse five says the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Cause this is a, an important dignitary. He's a military guy. So he, the king of Syria, who actually had power over the king of Israel at this time, wanted to let the king of Israel know that he wasn't tampering with him and he was sending this guy on a special mission. Naaman does this at the end of verse 5. It says, he went, taking with him 10 talents. 10 talents was 750 pounds of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read... When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. The king of Syria must be picking a fight with me. He's mocking me. He sends his general to me with leprosy and a letter saying, I've sent him to you to cure him of leprosy. Yeah, right. He tears his clothes, the king does. He's so in distress. He thinks he's going to be under attack from Syria. And look at, it says in verse 8, But then Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house, Elisha doesn't even invite him in. Elisha doesn't even go outside and talk to him. Elisha, verse 10, sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the lepers. This isn't how I pictured it being done. I've come all this way. I've brought gifts to give to this Elisha. We finally found him. And he doesn't even get up from his little rinky-dink kitchen table. He sends his messenger, that would have been Gehazi, no doubt, out to him and says, Hey, go down to the Jordan and duck yourself in the water seven times. 
Naaman's a big time guy and he says, I don't like this. I don't want to go duck in the muddy river here. He says, that's not how I pictured this. I thought he would come stand before me. I thought he would give a big speech. I thought he would wave his hand over. He had it all figured out how God was going to work. And when God didn't do it, when a guy didn't do it and he didn't get his prayers answered the way he thought, he was ticked off. We do that a lot, don't we? I really don't like the way this is working out. That is not the answer to my question that I was looking for. And so we get pretty miffed that God isn't really doing things the way we think God ought to do them. You ought to figure out pretty soon that God rarely does things the way we think he ought to do. So he's mad, Naaman is, so he takes off. His servants say, my father, verse 13 it's a, it's a great word that the prophet has told you. Furthermore, it's simple. Why don't you just go do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Kabam! Wouldn't you love to have been there? The part of the story I wanted to get to, though, is Gehazi. You know what Gehazi's thinking about? He's thinking about what happens next. Naaman jumps up. He returns to the man of God with his entire entourage. And he says, now I know there's a God on earth. Accept these gifts. You have helped me so much. Take the silver, the gold, the garments. Elisha says, not in a million years. Go home. Praise the Lord. Elisha's a simple prophet. Gehazi's a simple man. He's a servant to the prophet of God. They live off the sustenance of people bringing him a chicken once in a while and some eggs. They don't have anything. And what is Gehazi thinking about? Gehazi is like, are you kidding me, boss? This guy's loaded. He brought it for you. You helped him cure of his leprosy. What are you doing? And Gehazi must stand and watch the guy go across the desert. Across the country, down the road. All the gold, all the silver, all the garments. And he goes back in to find some carrot peelings to make some soup. It's like, what's going on here? So then look what happens. Verse 19. Elisha says, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, verse 20, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God said, see, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he bought, what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him, and he said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept the two talents. And he urged him, and he tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he couldn't go over the hill or Elisha might see him, he took them from their hand and he put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed and he went in and he stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, oh, you know, you know your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Elisha said, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Gehazi, was it a time to accept money and garments and olive orchards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. I think that Elisha is being facetious. 
in Gehazi's face. And I think Gehazi knows exactly what's going on. And he says, therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Ah. You see, God had a plan for Gehazi, but it was a limited lifestyle. And in that limited lifestyle, Gehazi began to long for other things outside the will of God. And as he longed for other things, his longing turned into lust. The limitations create the longing, leads to the lust. And so he lied. He lied to himself first, didn't he? Well, my master did a great work here and there would be nothing wrong with me picking up a little tip for it. And after all, we need it and I'm the master. I'm the servant here and I know what we need and I know the cupboards are bare. And so he lied to himself and then he lied to Naaman, verse 22. Naaman gets out of his chariot and says, why did you come, Gehazi? Oh, you know, the prophet school, that's it. Uh, a couple of core, poor country boys have come and, and they need clothes. They don't have anything. And we need some money to buy extra food because they're going to be interns under prophet Elisha. He makes up a story and Naaman's more than happy to give him the stuff. He insists upon it. And then when he gets home, he lies to Elisha. And it's, it's profoundly pathetic. This dissatisfaction with God's plan of blessing for my life that takes me places that are outside of his will so that I am in my heart greedy for things that God says not now. You're dissatisfied with his provision? Give you manna every day and you're unhappy with my provision. You want more, more, more. You're unhappy with my plan, and so you're greedy. One other text in the New Testament, and Paul's instruction to the Philippian believers, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 4, in a, a, once again, another very familiar passage of Scripture. Attitude check. Am I greedy? Am I greedy? Am I longing for things that God has chosen not to provide right now so that it is a for sure indicator that I am disappointed with God's plan of blessing for my life? One other thought as we test ourselves as to whether or not we are thankful people. Thankful people don't grumble. Thankful people aren't greedy and finally, with just a couple verses, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, number three, thankful people aren't grouchy. Thankful people aren't grouchy. It's somewhat related to point one, the grumbling. But this grouchiness manifests itself, doesn't it, in a, in a manner where it's a for sure indicator of a disregard for the presence of God in my life, we're going to see in this passage in Philippians. I'm just grouchy. I'm unhappy. I mean, grumbling comes out of grouchiness, so maybe this one should have been first. We're just, just not happy with the circumstances of my life. I'm not happy with the people in my life. I'm not happy with the way things are going in my life. And I feel grouchy. I feel angry. I feel upset. I'm just grouchy. 
Look what Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He says, I'm going to say it again. I want you to rejoice. Be joy-filled people. He's already said this in chapter 3, verse 1. Look at it, look at there. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm going to say it one more time. Again, I will say rejoice. Now look what he says. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. ESV translates that word reasonableness. In the NIV, it's the word gentleness. It's the idea of having a quiet, gentle spirit. Don't be upset. Don't be grouchy. Be gentle. Be, let your gentleness, your reasonableness, be known to everyone. Look what he says next. Because the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Here's our word. With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. God's people are what? God's people are to be thankful people. And when we're grouchy, listen. Grouchiness is a for sure indicator of disregard for the presence of God in my life. Let me show you where I see that. It says there, let your gentleness, your lack of grouchiness, don't be grumbling, don't be grouchy, because why? The Lord is at hand. So don't be anxious In Matthew chapter 6, coming up, we have a whole passage about anxiety. We'll probably remind ourselves of this text then as well. But by prayer and supplication, with a thankful spirit, let your request be. You know what it means there where it says, the Lord is at hand. In the NAS, the New American Standard, and in the NIV, New International Version, it translates, the Lord is at hand in the ESV, The Lord is near. It has the idea of proximity. It has the idea of closeness. It has the idea of a presence in the room. Here's the thing. Okay, I'm a pastor. And so I visit people. It's very comical sometimes to see people, especially if you happen to catch them a little bit by surprise, flip a switch and change their behavior because now the pastor's there. You're walking up to the door and you're ready to knock on the door and you hear some grouching and growling going on and carrying on and you're like, I don't know if I should knock or not. You knock, oh, pastor, come on in, you know, and how you doing? And I'll tell you what pastors do. When somebody from the congregation slips up to their house, they do the same thing. The presence of someone whose opinion you care about, watching you, listening to your words has an immediate influence on your self-control, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you can speak kind words. All of a sudden, this grouchiness. Oh, everything's all good now. You see what Paul's saying here? Let your gentleness, let your reasonableness knock off the grouchiness because the Lord is right here. If the Lord is right here with us, I better straighten up my act. Furthermore, he can meet my needs. But when I forget about the presence of the Lord there, it's easy to be grouchy and thankless. My requests with all thanksgiving. Attitude check. Are you grouchy? If you're grouchy, you've probably lost the element of gratitude that you need to have 
you have certainly lost sight of the fact that present with us observing right now is my Lord Jesus. My Heavenly Father looks right. He's right here. And I'm being grouchy in His presence. It's a wake-up call for some of us, isn't it? Not to be too negative today at all, but couched in the negative, we remind ourselves that thankful people don't grumble. Grumbling is a for sure indicator of dissatisfaction with God's provision for my life. I don't like what God has given me. I grumble. Thankful people aren't greedy. Greediness is a for sure indicator of disappointment with God's plan of blessing for my life today. God's people aren't grouchy. Grouchiness is a for sure indicator of a disregard for the very presence of God in the room right now. I wonder if this wouldn't be just a great week for us to watch ourselves a little more closely. To thank God for the daily manna. The everyday common things that have been there every day, every day for a year and will be there for the next 39 years based upon His provision, His plan of blessing, a reminder of His presence. He has met my needs. He's a faithful God. Why would I be anything other than grateful? Let's exercise it this week and the rest of the year. God's people are thankful people. Let's pray. Father, most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sin. Thankful for the great salvation, the great hope of heaven, the great assistance of the Holy Spirit in us where we can indeed have victory over the flesh. Father, would you help us to ponder these stories the grumbling Israelites, greedy Gehazi, the gentle-spirited prayer warrior in Philippians who with thanksgiving just makes their requests made known to you. Father, we, we want to conform to our Lord Jesus. We want to walk in step with the Spirit. Empower us and strengthen us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.